that straightens out misunderstandings. Okay, so um, let's just start. Again, since um, my sense, it was hard the first time I taught you my sense of how much you knew about discussing and how familiar with it you were, wasn't there. But now I've got a pretty good sense, so you haven't done it for a while, and let's break the ice by I'll volunteer to do some of the first talking. So let's start with something that um, is, is not going to be on the exam, but I think we'll show you, uh, again, we're looking at ways to use in the information that you have. So this looks familiar because this is the eukaryotic ribosome, the message and the transfer RNA. We zoom in and see that that transfer RNA's decoding uh, anticodon stem is down here where the messenger RNA is. But the amino acid is up here near the blue, which is the nucleic acid of the large subunit. Now, anybody remember what the RNA size is on the large subunit of a eukaryote? 28S. Great. Actually, I would never ask you that, but it does come in handy because even today, 28S and 18S ribosomal RNAs are used as molecular weight standards. And they're internal. They're also load stand, internal load standards when you're doing analysis of RNA. So there's the peptidotransferase, uh, a few residues in that nucleic acid, in particular an adenosine, which is the active catalytical residue. Now, remember the story with alpha-sarsin? Prokaryotic translation. I know we have an exam, so you know, we're talking about an election that was given before the last exam. <laughs> before eukaryotic transcription, eukaryotic transcription regulation. So it was a while back, but just alpha sarsen. So it was a fungal toxin. It was a fungal toxin that was actually a type of enzyme. What type of enzyme? of 
alpha starting. It's a ribonuclease whose sole substrate is that adenosine residue in the large subunit rRNA. So it's going to clip it and inactivate the ribosomes. Now, why on earth would a plant make something like this? Well, only one, actually there's another plant that makes it, but it makes such a minor amount, we don't even talk about it. Um, but the castorine plant makes it, and it puts it into its seed coat. And that's protection of its seed, basically. Because any animal that comes along and eats the seed of a castor bean, there's a huge, there's a very large amount of ricine in that seed coat. And so that's going to, at the very least, make that insect or animal sick, and they won't go do it again. They won't eat it again, and if it's, you know, many animals are together and they see another animal die and they stay away from that plant. So here it's going to come in and clip that residue. So ricin, why are we worried about it as a bioterrorism agent? Well, it's incredibly toxic at very low levels because of its mechanism. But here's the deal. It turns out that before we really understood what ricin did, or what it was, it was a commercially important product, a plant. Four billion tons of castor bean seeds are grown worldwide every year. Why? Because you take the beans, you squish out the, the oil, and you have castor oil commercially, industrially important in pharmaceuticals. It even goes in some perfumes. They use it all over the place. And after you've expressed the oil, you still have several billions of tons of what was left. Well, it's a seed. It's hugely high in protein, vitamins, nucleic acids. So you don't throw it away. You use it as livestock feed. But of course, just like us, Ricin is going to cut the ribosome in, a, in all mammals and in insects as well, too, basically invertebrates. And invertebrates, right? Insects are invertebrates. So they came up with a chemical means to inactivate ricin. So they treat this ricin, this uh, castor bean residue, with the chemical method to get rid of the ricin. But that still means that, from a bioterrorism point of view, the source of ricin is around. And that's where, that's why it's on a select agent list, and that's why it's so, uh, such a big concern for bioterrorism, because you wouldn't have to plant any extra castor beans. It's out there in the world being grown for, you know, the right reasons. And the worry is that uh, some bioterrorism group is going to get their hands on the seeds. Or they, don't even, they don't really need the seeds. They need that this, the product after it's expressed. From the CDC and the World Health Organism's uh, point of view, the problem is, is that that process by which ricin is uh, destroyed, inactivated, doesn't always work to the highest efficiency. So several hundred livestock die every year and 40 to 50 people who were feeding the hand, the livestock died. Not in the United States, because we don't allow it to be used. But, and that was even before bioterrorism was an issue. But in a fair number of the countries in Europe, especially Eastern Europe, in um, the Middle East, and up into Southern Russia, 
It's a very big deal. Okay, so ricin. Never realized that you'd learn about ricin because you were working on translation. All right, now let's switch to cap independent versus cap dependent translation. And I'll just stop for a minute. Does anybody have any questions on the material that you had for the self-study? Diagrams on animations pretty clear. Great, great. You have you, you can always if something comes up later you can always uh, you know just if you just kind of wave your hand that way I know that you've got a question or just speak up. There's a call. Uh, but you can tell I don't leave pauses that often so you may have to wave that hand. All right, so let's talk about the iris, the structure that's going to be used for cat independent. Now, it's well accepted now how it works, but it wasn't so clear to begin with. Um, and what they had initially done as experiments are what's shown here, which is to take a linear um, piece of DNA that would could be that had a promoter on it and would be just transcribed into a message. Well, all messages linear, right? So they would put the they put a five prime cap on it with a, a regular ribosome scans, 5' untranslated region, and then a gene like the thymidine kinase gene that you could measure its activity. And then put a blank, a, just an ordinary non-promoter uh, sequence here, and have catalase gene after it, also something you can easily do an assay for. And then the other version was where there was an iris here, and then you simply looked to see how much PK did you get and how much catalase did you get. And when this is just an ordinary spanning DNA, uh, RNA piece, then you get this very trivial amounts of catalase. Because in eukaryotes, we don't have bisystronic messages. All our messages are monocystronic, one gene, one coding sequence. Uh, and our ribosomes are not really meant to do that. They're not organized in ways, basically our initiation system, or initiated translation, doesn't work with um, bisystronic or polysystronic messages. But now the iris makes an exception. And now there's a lot of the catalyst put in. So we use this as a tool to make artificial bisystronic messages. But as far as we know, naturally, no eukaryotic genes are bisystronic. But you know, this still left open the case, and many people argue that what was really happening is the ribosomes bounced the 5' prime in, and they scanned, and they just either didn't notice this AUG and COSAC consensus, and by mistake passed through it, and then saw this one and started. Or they never disassembled at the stop and kept going till they found that AUG. So they didn't need to reinitiate it still remained to be about an end. And this issue was not settled, so we're gonna look into this to just show you the diversity of how you can set up a simple experiment, but the right one, and solve completely settled an issue. So Peter Sarnow did this, and he did it because he remembered that there exists RNA ligase, which will ligate single-stranded RNA ends. You can buy it from you know, your favorites, catalog, 
you could get it from Sigma Aldridge now, but in the days when Peter Sarnow did it, you got it from New England Biolabs, which sells a lot of enzymes, uh, particularly enzymes that work on nucleic acids. So he realized that if you took this RNA and before you exposed it to ribosomes in the translation apparatus, if you diluted it so that it's unlikely that any two molecules were near each other, then the ligase would most likely put the ends together into a circle. And this was something that was you knew, people knew how to do. But no one thought to do this for an iris. Now he's got his open reading frame, and the ends that went together either had an iris or didn't. And now you put it with the translation apparatus. And only the one that had the iris produced protein. Proving without doubt that the cap-independent initiation mechanism has nothing to do with an end. It does not need the end. It only needs the iris. Okay, so why, why are we so taken with irises? Well, they were a tool, and in, initially that's all they were interested in, was the fact that you could use it as a tool to actually be able to express two genes at the same time. But then it turned out that as things laid out, it's, it has a lot to do with regulating translation and the dysregulation of translation in both metastasis and tumor cells maintenance and also the death of muscle cells, atrophy of muscle cells after denervation. So you have disease or you have injury. And once it was associated, the, the iris and cap independent mechanism was associated with that, then you're really, what's really interested in, in getting new classes of cancer and anti-muscle atrophy drugs that go after restoring balances in translation, the balance between uh, cap independent and cap dependent. So from the pre-study, I think that I had on there, remind me if I didn't, I had on there uh, a little blue uh, note telling you normally in a cell, what percentage of the translation is going on on cap message, cap dependent? You don't have to say the exact number. If you just remember, like, proportions. Proportion of the translation that was, yeah, you guys need to work on your pre-study. You're going to have to, you need to go in and actually get yourself to learn this beforehand so that we can have these discussions and we can go on to more advanced material. Most of it, well maybe I didn't. Okay. Maybe I didn't, yeah, I'm sorry, I apologize if I didn't, okay? <laughs> I apologize if I didn't. I, I thought that I put in there that like 98% of translation normally is cap dependent. Okay, I apologize, you guys, you, you studied hard, you tried. <laughs> Uh, and 2% is iris-mediated. Well, in what we're saying here is that in muscle atrophy and cancer, there's a lot more cat-independent iris. It becomes a, a large percentage, not the majority, but still a large percentage of translation, committing a lot of the ribosomes to that. And we're going to go into, uh, as we go through these, the next lecture, you see the material for next Tuesday, you'll see what's the problem with having too much cap-independent translation.
It has to do with, there aren't many genes that have irises, but the ones that do are very important. So that's sort of a, to help you see now, before you can go there for your pre-study for next Tuesday, it would help if you really understood an iris. So let's keep going with understanding an iris. So what does it look like? Well, we, we discovered that with poliovirus because indeed uh, a number of viruses that are human pathogens uh, actually have irises and they infect the, the host cell and then they quickly shut down host cell translation. Not all, but host cell cap dependent translation. Well, then they must have another way, a cap independent way to have translation because they're very successful in making their own proteins, their own transcripts to have translated. And in asking how could that be, that's how they found the secondary structure at the 5' end. And these viruses don't have a cap. And they then started looking, and this led to Peter Sarnow's uh, experiment. He actually was a poliovirus researcher to show that the iris was the answer. So here's the poliovirus iris. And you can see that it has a lot of structure. And I hope you, I think I did have this in the, at least in the script notes. You know, you, you also, if, you don't have me there talking, so it is worthwhile to look at the script notes after you go through the um, presentation, the animation. So, you see, there's no cap on this. Now, some messages with irises have five-prime caps, and some don't. The five-prime cap is going to be ignored if there's an iris. And that's typically because the iris is coming right, uh, right after the five-prime cap. Uh, I have to switch between my... I run my batteries out on these things. There you go. They need to recharge. So it was eventually discovered that some, only a small percentage, but some cellular genes contain irises. And they all have that common feature of this complex loop stem. Lots of cruciforms, as well as stem loop bulges, but just a, a very high intense structure. Now, I believe I did have in the notes, at least in the script notes, um, what, he, what EIF4A is in the initiation complex. Right. When we go back to this, EIF4A, I know it's really small. Anybody pick up what EIF4A is? Initiation factor? It's a helicase. Because all RNA has secondary structure, we show it for convenience as a nice linear molecule, but it isn't. It has secondary structure. So the scanning ribosome, and even after it finds the AUG, the progressing and synthesizing ribosome needs to be able to straighten out this secondary structure in the RNA. But its capacity as a helicase is not such that it can deal with the tight structure of an iris. The types of secondary structure you see in a typical messenger RNA that doesn't have an iris is just some stems and loops here and there, but no, not progressions of large clusters of stems and loops. So the, we know that 4A cannot undo that structure. And that explains why even if the message has a cap, a ribosome can't initiate at it and scan, because those helicases cannot unwind an iris. So, I, I want to remind you that uh, 
4 opens the door, so e, initiation factor 4 and all its different complexes is a key, and that's something you need to know the different components of. So E, well, E is for N. So it's going to bind the N, the 5 prime cap of that, E for N. G is for glue. So that's going to glue together the initiation complex. And when it's cap-dependent, that's got all these in it. But the important ones are the N, the EIF4N, EIF3. And why is EIF3 important? What's it doing? Well, what's it? Um, it's the one that actually binds the ribosome, the small subunit. So the only, uh, well, 4A does a little bit. But it's, this binding is not enough to recruit the small subunit. So you need EIF4, EIF3 to recruit the subunit. So then the small subunit and the messenger RNA. So it's going to glue that together. Now, we're going to add some subtlety to your understanding of cap-independent translation initiation. So in the, this case, there's no cap, so there's no EIF4E. It's the G is just going to glue together EIF3, the small ribosome, and the iris. And now we know that the way the cap initiation, uh, cap independent initiation occurs is there's your iris, the first thing to buy is EIF4G. Free EIF4G. Then the rest of the complex assembles around it and the iris. What that really means is that the amount of available EIF4E to bind caps is a rate-limiting entity in cap-dependent initiation. Whereas for cap-independent iris initiation, the rate-limiting entity is EIF4G. Now these slides are available for download on the site. Uh, they have, they've been up there a bit. I will say this, you might want to re-download them because I did finesse them over the last couple of days. Just seeing, well maybe it would help if I added this, it would help if I added that, for you to understand it. So I think that this, this statement here is up there. And the reason we're emphasizing that is I think this is the right point for you to understand that whatever controls the levels of EIF4E is controlling the level of cap initiation. And that's cap-dependent translation. Because you can't initiate, you can't translate. So that's Whatever controls free EIF4E controls cap-dependent translation, which is the majority of translation in itself. And whatever controls the availability of free EIF4G is controlling how much cap-independent initiation there is. And if you've got that solemnity in your mind, it will help a lot to understand the material for next week. All right, so now let's look at some of the genes. 
And we're going to start again building towards your base knowledge for the, the stuff for next Tuesday. Let's look at some of those cap-independent genes. And so one place, I mean, it's really not necessarily up to date since 2009. They put some stuff up, but they haven't put a huge effort into making sure it's comprehensive. Since 2009, if you want to look, it's a, it's a website. And uh, so I've excerpted. This is just a few that came from there. And so uh, here's some that have it. And oh, look, there's BIP. BIP. The binding protein for the assembly, it's a chaperone actually, for the assembly of MHC class 1 molecules. Yeah, we don't understand why, what do you, what do you need an iris on BIP for? That we don't know even now, but it is, and it was historically important simply because that was the first one found, and it was Peter Sarnow that discovered it. And once that was shown, then everyone was like, okay, maybe this isn't a virus phenomenon, maybe this is something that happens in normal cell genes as well too. But some of the other important ones as we scan down, CMIC, very notable, CMIC. CMIC is a transcription factor. Ah, but just below that, what is that? I know it's kind of small, can you read it? EIF4G. The factor that it's that can, of which control of regulates cap independent translation is itself made by cap independent translation. And in this list, another one that I want you that will come up again. So let's start getting it in your memory, is VEGF. Now I know that's a new gene for you to encounter. Does any, has anybody just encountered something where they know what VEGF is? Vascular endothelial growth factor. Vascular endothelial growth factor. Excellent. Vascular endothelial growth factor. Turns out to be very important. It is the growth factor that is required for a new blood vessel. So you enter a blood vessel, Cut your finger, it's got to be repaired, or the tissue that it served is going to die. Vascular endothelial growth factor starts being made, and it's very important for that. Uh, new blood vessel growth really does not occur appreciably in its absence. Ah, but it's got an iris on it. Alright, so now let's sort of put those together. The list is notable for the fact that it has not all transcription factors, but some very important transcription factors. So now you just did transcription and transcription regulation. So surely the transcription factor AP1 came up. AP1, AP1 binding site and promoters. It might have. That's where, yeah, okay, well, see now you actually can use that, the information that you learned in transcription to continue forward. Uh, it is, it's a global, uh, what they call a global, what, what does a global transcription factor mean? They didn't use that term? No, really? Well, what do you think? So global means that almost every promoter, yeah, yeah, almost every, just think of it, it's very well named. It's just almost every promoter has a site for that. 
and needs it. Yeah. So yes, it's a global promoter, but of course you've got to be careful with global promoters. So in truth, they discovered that it's actually a protein complex. Multi-subunit, usually a dimer, but what makes it AP1 is that every dimer always has C-June, the protein C-June. But the different AP1s and the different activities are created by partnering C-June with another protein, another subunit. I'm not going to put that on the test for you, but it's fine if you continue to expand your transcription knowledge. And I, I think if you did a candidacy exam and they asked you to tell about eukaryotic transcription regulation, they would expect you to know AP1 because it's just it's so important. Um, now, CMIC, of course, and HIP1 alpha, but I put in blue the one you need to know for the exam for this. So proteins involved in translation. So you notice in my short list was EIF4G, but also notably is S6. Now the nomenclature for ribosomal proteins is you put an S if the protein's in the small subunit, and you put an L if it's in the large. So we know that this is in the small subunit, and then they just numbered them in the order in which they were discovered. So this was the sixth one discovered. But it turns out to be a protein which, if phosphorylated, makes the ribosome more active at the elongation. You said these slides are posted. I can't find like this slide. I, I did. That's why I said you can probably want to download them again because okay. I did. I relooked. What happened is I, I got these ready and I posted them, and then I started working on next Tuesday's okay. material, and I realized that it would help you to progress to that if I put added some here. So yes, yeah, you probably want to re-download these. Some of them are like combined, like the last slide she had and this one are combined into one. And some yeah. of them are like out of order. Yeah. All right, so yeah. Yeah. I, I put them in a better order. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did some more work on them. And I, you know, probably should have uh, waited to post them. But I thought you might like to, I think it does help to study if you have an idea of what we're going to you're going to use it for in class. So putting up yes, the discussion slides could at least give you some clues. I don't, I don't see it. So you're going to repost this? Yes, I'm going to repost it. I will do it. Actually, I'll do it from this computer. It has a link. When, uh, yeah. When, as, when, when we finish class here, I've got this on this computer. I'll upload, I'll plug into Blackboard and do it right from this computer so you'll be able to get it right away. Um, so now you've got these proteins involved in translation, EIF4G and the S6 ribosomal protein, and growth factors. Now not all growth factors, and not all ribosomal proteins, but in this proteins involved in translation, almost all of the initiation factors and are carrying viruses on their test. Growth factors, uh, notice, I mean, I think that these three are the, really the only ones that we know of. So there's a lot of growth factors that don't have irises, but notably there's VEGF. Ah, but not on that iris site, because that iris site is dedicated to uh, iris-driven uh, messenger RNAs of coding message. Message. But actually,
actually, it turns out that irises are involved on ribosomal RNAs. They're not translated, but they have irises. And I don't understand quite what's going on there. But the basic bottom line is that a lot of making a ribosome and all the initiation factors you need are controlled by iris dependent translation. And there's highlighted what you really need to know. And the, the, the regulation of our RNAs as well, too. So, oh, okay, sorry. Here's where it was. <laughs> so in normal cells, actually, the, the vast bulk of translation is cap-dependent. And only a very small percentage is cap-independent. And you just need to know those proteins in blue text. And I put the RNAs here in the cyan just because that is, it isn't understood what irises have to do because these are non-coding RNAs. So, you know, but just to put it out there because I hopefully somebody will figure it out because it's a, a hot topic. All right, so let's go into some use of the knowledge that we got. How important is a COSAC? What's a COSAC consensus? For the small ribosomes, some of these bound? Or it doesn't have to It's the recognition sequence on the MRI. Or the EIF. Or is it the EIF? It's going to span an AUG. We, we just switched, by the way, from me doing most of the talking to you doing most of the talking. And that's what they're Does the, yes, the large subunit will join. That's right. And what is it called? So this is, these are, this is, this is um, occurring with the small subunit is recognizing this. So how did the small subunit find it? Anybody understand what my question is but not know the answer? Can we phrase it? <laughs> I think that I think you know this answer. I'm just that you, my question just didn't. Okay, so the majority of translation is occurring by captivant. So let's look at captivant. Although, by the way, when when that EIF4G binds to an iris, the three prime end of the iris. And it assembles the small subunit and the initiator uh, transfer RNA, IF, EIF3 as well. It's not going to start translation right there. It will also find the next COSAC consensus sequence. So whether it's cap dependent or cap independent, the initiating AUG must have a COSAC consensus sequence around it in order to be recognized as the start site. Okay, but since most is going to be cap independent, start with the small ribosome and its little complex assembling around the five prime cap. So is the start AUG going to be right there? It scans. It scans. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Oh, you did. Uh, okay. That's you why didn't. I didn't have the answer then. I thought you were asking for molecular mechanism of scanning. <laughs> no, because it's not actually understood. It's still, it's not understood. And in fact, there's still a war. Does it require ATP or not? I mean, can you imagine something moving all that far distance without needing energy input? And yet, they haven't been able to prove. There's no signs, no evidence that energy input is needed. So yeah, that's a, uh, no one knows. I mean, it's an object of research, though not that intensive because it works, so. <laughs> uh, so yes, it's going to scan. Move down, looking for the COSAC consensus, and it will only pause and recruit the 40S when you reach that. All right? So does anybody remember what the COSAC consensus is? That's worth remembering. Yeah. Purine, anything, anything, AUG, purine. Right? And in the script notes, I hope again that I'm not remembering this. Did I mean that I, oh no, I asked you a question. I said, uh, oh, what do you think would happen? That's a study question. What would happen if the Minus three position wasn't a purine. Did I ask that study question? Plus one. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that's a that's a good way to put it. What about plus one? So sorry, I'm a little confused about so some of the notes say plus four, which is you know the A. Oh, plus four. four. But Did I say plus one anywhere? Because yes. that's not right. Yes, it's plus was, four. There was both. Well, I knew it was plus four, but there was both. Ignore the plus one. Yeah, sorry. My typing is my my thought process. My the flow from brain to fingers doesn't always make it. So yes, it should always be plus four. The plus one is the A of the AUG. So yeah, it should be plus four. So yeah, what if plus four is not a purine? It looks like on the chart it said about a third of them is still recognized. Yeah. So you see her data that it wasn't it was it was clearly a majority of plus four positions had purines, but yeah, maybe 25, 30 percent of authentic star codons actually have a pyrimidine, and they work. What about the now? Let's go to the minus three position. What was what was the chart? Yeah, 97% of, 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 of real genes have a purine, and real genes have evolved to tell us what really matters. So that minus three position matters most. The, my, the plus four position, you can't have a cysteine. Uh, I'm sorry, a cysteine. What, but what do you think might happen if you had, for a gene whose message had a pyrimidine? In the plus four position. We know that a third, a fourth to a third of the genes do. Are we recognized by less of the factors that are by lower absorption levels? Yes, that's exactly it. So we recognize now the placement of a pyrimidine in the plus four position is a type of gene regulation. Fine-tuning the protein. Exactly. Because when there's a plus four pyrimidine, the ribosome scans past it. 
you know, we don't know exactly, but somewhere, maybe close to half the time, it doesn't even recognize it. So you get about half the amount of protein from a message that has that. And it's a way to fine tune protein synthesis. We believe that those genes that have a pyrimidine in the minus three position, it's also a negotiation of fine tuning. Only now you're really causing that message to be translated very poorly. But they turn out to be proteins you only need a little of. You would assume that the, the minus three would make more sense with scanning that direction if they're used to the That's first one it encounters. First one it encounters. So I guess the ones that encounter the purity might have a larger recognition site, so they might be more stringent in their standard. That's very good. That's actually very good. That's great that you guys are, you know, you get into that as well, too. And that's a wonderful lead into the next thing I'd like to point out. Sorry, can you say that again? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to watch the video. You know, it's going towards the AUG, so the first one's obviously more important. And, and if you have a smaller sequence, then you may have less stringency in how you have to recognize. So it may only, rec only, may only need to recognize the minus three and the AUG specifically, but some of them might need to recognize all of it, and they won't bind to anything but all of it. And that's why they stay more consistent. Yes. Now, that plus then why might the system have evolved so that the plus four could be a little more flexible? Yes, because the plus four is going to be the first nucleotide in a codon for the second amino acid. And if every protein had to start with a COSAC that was perfect, you're limited to the you you're already limited to methionine as the first nucleic the first amino acid. If this is required, then you're further limited to only amino acids which whose codon starts with G or with A. And as it turns out, well, what? At four of the codons that start with A. Those, those four codons, those are going to be lysine, a highly positive, highly active amino acid. Or, oh, see, oh, uh, is it glutamine? Uh, no, 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 because glutamine is glutamine. Oh, my God, asparagine. <laughs> so, uh, our asparagine, which is probably okay because it's somewhat of an innocuous in, uh, amino acid, but you certainly, you want to be careful about putting positively charged, highly uh, chemically active residues like lysines as the second amino acid. You like to have choices. Now, G actually gives you lysines, you know, G, GG, anything is a lysine, but GAG, GAA is aspartate and glutamate. So now you're back to acidic, very active residues. So for protein function, probably the system evolved to allow pyrimidines to be there. And if you allow pyrimidine to be there, then you can get a leucine as a second. Because leucine um, all start with seeds, the four seeds, 
four of things that start with C are from leucine, and two of the things that start with U, uh, UU, are for leucine. So you get the opportunity to put in, you know, innocuous amino acids as a second amino acid. All right, now, let's look at what that can tell us in a real life situation. And that is this disease that's osteo, osteogenesis imperfecta. So it's also known as brittle bone disease. There are actually many types of them, so we're only gonna look at type five. So there will be other cognitive genes uh, for other ones. And this was co-published. Uh, they two groups just found it at the same time. Let's look at the disease. Um, you can see in these x-rays, the, the bones are not as straight as they should be. Uh, the growing plate can sometimes be thicker, but notice that there are these bone tissue growths to the side that's called hyperplastic callus. Uh, it can be very, very bad. You see it in this child, and here again, here. Huge amounts of bone growth. It's an extremely painful disease. But the bone is also not strong. So you see that these, these are uh, rods of many different kinds which had to be put in these children's bones because otherwise they would just break and um, be unusable. Uh, you notice this is an arm, and you might ask why is the arm bowed? You can understand why a leg would be bowed because someone's standing on it, but this disease is apparent at birth. And remember that infants are moving around mostly by pushing up on their arms. And so this arm bowing occurs in their um, infancy. All right, so what causes that disease? Well, no one knew. So they did whole exome sequencing. Uh, is that a technique that you've gone over? Uh, or at least heard of? Yeah, so what do you do? What, what does whole exome mean? Expression, exons. So the exons on the messenger RNA. Uh, so we're going to assume then that whatever gene is causing the disease is being expressed. That's a pretty fair assumption, right? So now, here's what they found. And we're only going to look at the sequence they're showing in the paper. Only the sequence around the place where lots of work told them was the causative mutation. So here are two families in this first paper. And there's the mother of one family and then the other. And now, I know it's kind of good to turn this front light off. So if you haven't seen DNA, DNA sequence uh, data, raw data before, so each color denotes a particular uh, nucleotide, and blue is C, and red is T. And that's all you need to remember right now. Blue is T, is C, and red is T. And that's true, but this is a standard color code that everyone uses. So here's mom, and in this particular position of this gene, there's a C. And this mom also has a C. So what does dad have? Uh, dad has a C. And dad has a C. So both sets of parents had C's. And I can tell you right now, everyone in this room, including me, has got a perimity in that position because we don't have brittle bone disease. 
proband is the affected child. The proband, now look there. Can you see? Pink is shorter, which is a tip that something's going on. There's two chromosomes, two copies of every gene. Two message, a message coming from each one. So if the pink is half as high, that means the transcript from one chromosome gene is different at that position than the transcript from the other one. And that indeed is what happened. These children, this one and again here, have a shorter peak and it's, there's, the, there's two peaks there. One is blue and one is red. One chromosome was undamaged and retained the wild type C blue peak, but there was a mutation on the other chromosome during meiosis in each of these children, and that changed that C to a T. And my wife, no, sorry, changed that C to a T, yes. That's right, I don't want to get it wrong. To a T. Ah, oh, you know, what would that mean? Well, to help you understand, they're highlighting in yellow on this transcript, there's the authentic stop going on. This is actually upstream of it. Oh, okay. And now I put the numbering in from that AUG in the minus position. And then notice here is the wild type. Here's the, real, the authentic start codon, both in the child and in each of the parents. What's, what is, what's going on with this? The plus four position is what? G. What's that? Primitive purine. 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 That's Kozak consensus, perfect. What's the minus three position? It's a pyrimidine. So this gene naturally has an imperfect Kozak consensus. And it has the imperfect type for which there's actually not very good translation start from that. That's not very well recognized. That T is in the minus 14th position and just by chance, what does it create? What else do you see? Yeah. What else is what else is happening just by chance? It creates a star codon in what otherwise is not a cosac sequence, but that otherwise That's another term. That is a term that's used. The cryptic. There was a, uh, it creates a cryptic form. A new COSAC consensus just on that one chromosome. How good is that COSAC consensus? Perfect. Purine. Anything, anything, AUG purine. So what do you think is going to happen when the message from the mutated gene is bound by a ribosome. 
It's going to start there. It's going to start there. What kind of disaster could that cause? Right. So I'm not showing you what's in between here and here. Could be a stop codon in this reading. It's going to set a reading frame, which only has a one in three chance of being the correct reading frame for the protein. That's some good math. <laughs> so, did you understand what Benjamin said? He realized that the mutation is at the minus 14th position, which means the A is at the minus 15. Oh, 15 is an even multiple of 3. So, how many codons? It's going to be in the right reading frame. How many codons? Additional? 5. 15 divided by 3. Five extra codons, five extra amino acids. As long as there's no stop codon here in front. So let's see what happens. So indeed, in the other paper, they found the same mutation. But now in their figure, they show you the codons in between. And indeed, there was no stop codon. It is in the same reading frame. And five amino acids are added to the amino terminus. You know, the amazing thing is, that's adding, well, everything would have a methionine at the end, but that's adding an alanine leucine glutamate, glutamic acid and proline. And the result is a protein that expressed, and they were able to show that in these children, that protein is present. It's got five extra amino acids, but it causes cat disease. It's the only example I know of where, because usually, not the only example of this kind of a mutation causing disease, but the more usual thing is that it would have been, a, it's in the wrong reading frame, and there's a stop codon. So what happens is you don't get any protein out of that message, and then you lack a protein. But this was very unusual, because the protein is there, it's got five extra amino acids, and it causes it to be not only non-functional, but to dominant negative destroy the activity of the wild type. Because remember, these children have a wild type gene on the other chromosome. They have normal message. It's not making much protein. So probably wouldn't be, this would be the majority, because that's a great COSAC. So they, the cells would be cranking out a lot of this. And apparently, that's all you need for it to dominate and cause the disease. Any questions? It's pretty amazing stuff going on here, if you know about COSAC. All right, so this is just them showing that the protein was there. All right, any questions about polyribosomes? Yeah, that animated movie, I, I, that was new. I just found that this year, and I wish I'd had it years before this, because that's actually, I think, pretty cool. Was that helpful in understanding? Yeah. But that animated movie was, I mean, it was just based off this. And this is lacking two important things. What's missing? What's missing from this diagram that have to be there? 
as a tree. Sorry, and I forgot to put the Protein. So, how does the circle form? It's all about circularizing that messenger RNA. What is that circularization based on? Four G and the uh, poly A binding protein. Yeah. Uh, oops. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're we're looking at the majority of. Uh, uh, I can't get that one to work. So the the cap binding protein 4E, N binding protein 4E, plus 4G, and then I should have had that pink oval that's a poly A binding protein because poly A binding protein is there's a binding site for it on EIF4G. And that's that's the key. And this gives us a real life picture of the fact that while we like to think and mote and many diagrams put the 4E as binding on the cap and then going away as the ribosome starts going down. It doesn't. Once it binds the cap, that molecule of 4E is staying on that cap. And because it's there, it's constantly recruiting. As soon as the complex one ribosome moves down, then it recruits another EIF4G, which recruits poly A. And it keeps binding. It keeps that in a circle. And that is a much more efficient way to continually translate and get very large numbers of proteins out of it. Now, so let's look at how experimentally you use the information that we know about translation to actually determine if a protein is expressed and if its expression is being regulated by the repression or manipulation of its translation. Because, uh, you know, we learn, how, we learn how protein works versus catalysis, but that seldom tells us how it might be involved in normal function or disease. What tells us about how it was involved in normal function or disease is how it's regulated. Disease occurs because it was misregulated, although sometimes because it was uh, mutant as well. So the initial experiments you do would always be these two. Quantify the messenger RNA using some type of PCR that's quantitative. I quantify the protein present in the cell using an ELISA, ideally because an ELISA is actually more accurate and sensitive. But we don't have ELISA kits on the reagents always to do ELISAs for them, so more commonly people are doing Western blot analysis. You familiar with all those techniques? Good, okay. So now, when you do that, there are three possible outcomes. Now, I will admit there are some shades of gray on this, but let's just go with the three main ones. That's what you most likely can So three possibilities. Oh, look at that. PC to MAC glitch. So obviously, this should be lined up with that, and this should be lined up with that, and that was going with this, which got on the next line. So, hope you can. You got that. Now, I think this was on the original. 
class on that path. So if you printed that out, you see what I'm talking about. So your first possibility is that messenger RNA is detected and proteins detected. So if you've got message and you've got protein, is it likely that that protein's expression is being regulated at the level of translation? I've got some head shaking, but you know, people can't hear head shakes, so put out a no. That's correct. No. The second possibility is no detectable messenger RNA, no detectable protein. How is that protein being regulated? Transcription. Yes, yes. Well, of course there's no protein synthesis uh, regulation because there's no message. Ah, but the last possibility, messenger RNA is detected, but there's no detectable protein. Now, yeah, now that sounds like a translation regulation. Possibly, but there, the reason you have to do the experiments is because there are two possibilities. Now, let me just, I'll, I'll lean over here and do it. So with possibility three can be explained by Translation regulation. I'll just abbreviate But it can also be explained by by protein to another. So there are many proteins which are highly, or at least a significant number of them, which are highly unstable. They are so unstable that they are degraded as fast as they are synthesized. And in the case of those, you get the same result. You have messenger RNA, but no detectable protein, because both ELISA's and Western blots can only detect the steady state the average amount of protein. And if a protein is degraded too quickly, on average, it's not there. Yeah? What if you added a protease in it that is prevented degradation? Um, well, you'll have to know the right, that's yes. And that is something that people do. Uh, so, but they would, and, and depending on the lab, they would either do that first, or they would do what we're going to talk about first. Because you do what you have the skills to do. So adding uh, protease inhibitors would be one way to see if now the protein is detectable. And obviously if it becomes detectable with protease inhibitors, then it was all about its uh, stability and half-life. The difficulty with that is that there's more than one protein degradation system and so you have to you have to figure out the so you just figure out the one, and that's why you only do that if you're skilled in that, because you have to figure out the right inhibitors to use. And as you do so, you find the the degradation system that's being used to turn that protein over. Uh, so the the situation now would be to figure out which one is going on. And since we're talking about translation repression, we're <laughs> we're going to go with the 
the approach of asking whether it's post-transcriptionally regulated at translation. So, um, Now, you had a pre-study, and we talked about the method that you used. What was that? What is that method? How do you find out if a protein is actually what? What's a method to determine if uh, translation repression is occurring? Pre-study gradients, fractions, a yes. Is the gradient student melt percentage that we're going to uh -huh. It should be around the ADS subunit. We can extract that and, and sequence the uh, reverse transcribe the RNA and Neurons. They need to rest. 
in between. Now, this transporter, EEA2, is a major transporter on neurons that prompt the glutamate. It's on neurons and astrocytes as well, too, that are around the synaptic junction. And it's pumping glutamate out of that synaptic junction to prevent the death of the neurons. But patients with ALS were known to have reduced amounts of this protein, though for different reasons. No one, you know, different mutations would cause reduction of this, is my understanding. So there was an idea in the field that if you could find a small molecule drug that would increase EA2 expression, not by transcription, increasing transcription, but by increasing its translation, which tells you that they had discovered that the reason patients have reduced amounts of this is they have translational repression inappropriate translational repression of EEA2. If you could find a molecule that counteracted that translational repression and could increase the translation of the EEA2 message, then you might be able to clear glutamate and keep the neurons from dying. It would be a treatment for ALS. So before this paper, they had done a high-throughput drug screen and found a strong candidate drug. And here's the paper where they looked at what it could do. So there's a drug, doesn't matter, you have to worry. And you can see that the drug, here is the uh, protein, so this would be uh, Western blot data, the level of the protein, fold increase. So there it is in the normal levels in patient cells, but now they add that drug in increasing micromolar, and you see that the protein Now, if it's functional protein, which really matters, then it will be increasing glutamate uptake. And indeed, here's glutamate uptake, and again the drug, same cells that had increased protein now show increased glutamate. So this upregulates the translation of the protein, and that protein is capable of pumping that glutamate out of the junction. Now they're going to look and see. Yeah, there's the drug, no drug, and you, the, the patient cells show almost no glutamate, uh, almost no EEA2. Now you see lots of EEA2, and it's, it's giving a pattern where it looks like it's on the membrane and the surface of the cell, which is where it needs to be to pump the glutamate. And now they do a Western block, and they show that in the membrane is the EEA2 uh, protein, and but it's not in the cytoplasm. Uh, and then when you treat with the drug, you have a much stronger Western blot, Western blot band, and it's in the membrane, not the cytoplasm, which is where you want it to do. Flotillin is a membrane marker. And then actin was the cytoplasmic marker to make sure that they actually have some protein in their cytoplasmic fraction. So now they've got evidence that the drug is causing there to be more, but they know that the FDA will not even approve clinical trials of this drug unless they work out the mechanism quite well. So now they have to establish exactly why this happened. They think it's because it's relieved translation repression, but they don't know. So they do those typical experiments. They're going to look at the RNA level. They have looked at the protein level. We're going to look at it in a minute. So how is the drug increasing it? 
Does it increase transcription or the stability of the RNA? So they did that relative expression in the message without the drug, with the drug, no difference. So it's not transcription regulation. Does that drug increase the stability of EEA2 so the proteins longer live? So it accumulates to higher levels? Maybe it's actually countering, maybe they found a drug that's that stops degradation. Maybe that drug's a partial protease inhibitor. So they look at eight hours and at 24, but the half-life of the protein plus the drug or minus the drug is the same. And you'll notice that actually there's equal levels, minus the drug or plus, but that's because they they loaded this lane with more material in order to get an equally right band because they want to look at half-life. All right, it's, it's the Paul Chase experiment here says there's no difference in the half-life. So if transcription, messenger RNA stability and protein stability and half-life aren't changed, then it's time to check if the drug alters the inclusion of EEA2 into messenger RNA. And what's the technique they need to use? What? Fractionate. Fractionate on the gradients, isolate the fractions, get the RNA from it, and do reverse transcription with primers that are specific to the EEA2 messenger. All right, so they take the lysate, they run it in the gradient, they fill, pull off each of those gradients, and they came in, and the first thing they did with those gradient fractions is to quantify protein and nucleic acid. Well, it turns out that, remember from cell study, protein and nucleic acids both absorb quite well at 254. It's a common um, wavelength that they'll absorb that. So you can look at that and see, and then they quantified messenger RNA and RT-PCR and here's the results of the um, of the, the absorbance showing where the protein and the nucleic acid are. All right, on to your walk us through those figures. But the first volunteer gets the easy job. Look, show us what's going on with actin. On to your. It would be to the left. 
So this, the neurons are dead here, but here the drug has caused them to stay alive. But I think what's more profoundly informative is uh, this picture of four-month-old mice, these genetically mutant mice that get ALS. This animal was not treated, and he's not asleep. They are unable to even stand up or crawl around. So this is an, this animal's immobile, and there's the animal that was treated with the drug. So in the future, hopefully this will turn out, and apparently it had no toxicity at the highest level they looked at. So looks like there's a very promising thing going on there. Next Tuesday, cell study. It is difficult material, it's true. You probably uh, have never heard of microRNAs. You could be dealing with two issues. MicroRNAs, you may, may have heard of them, but don't know much about them. You're going to learn about microRNAs. And then you're going to learn about